Welcome, my name is David Yoakum. I'm the director of the lab at DC. It is my pleasure to have Brian Nozick with me today. Brian is a professor at the University of Virginia. You're also the co-founder and executive director for the Center for Open Science, which is one of the, the concepts behind the center is something that we're gonna get into a lot today. Yeah. By way of just introduction, your background, the research you were doing before establishing the center had to do with implicit bias. And I think you were the co-founder of Project Implicit, and you know this has to do with how many of the things that drive our behavior aren't necessarily in our conscious sort of intentions. There's things beyond that, and it introduces this interesting gap between the things we value and intend to do and our ultimate behavior, which I think has a nice parallel for where I'd like to start our conversation at, this sort of values that we have for what research yeah. can do right. in generating truth with a capital T, if you will, right. but then the gap that can emerge whenever we actually start to do this in practice. So I wonder if you could start off by maybe saying a little bit about those aims of research. What is it as a research enterprise? What is it that we're actually striving to accomplish? Yeah, well, the, these are sort of big issues in that the goal of research, presumably, is to find out what's what, right? What is the truth? What's actually happening out there? And we need to do research because we have ideas about what's reality but they're just ideas. We need evidence. And so how do we acquire evidence to uh, either confirm the ideas that we already have or show where they're incorrect and need revision? And the challenge, though, where it sort of comes back to this idea of bias uh, is that it, most of the time we want to be right. Uh, and so our motivations are the ideas that I have now, the approach I have now, the things that I need, I, I want those to be true. And so those can be ideologically driven, they can be politically driven, they can be just, this is how I think the world works. And so research has the aim of uh, confronting us with where we are wrong, but doesn't necessarily have a process all the time that facilitates that. We can be misled unintentionally in how we do our research to be finding things that are consistent with our existing beliefs rather than actually confronting our beliefs, right. Right. drifting away from the truth. Right. Well, so let's unpack the first part of that. So earlier, whenever you were giving a talk at the lunch at DC, one of the things you started with is the recognition that as a research community, there are these core values yeah. that we agree to, or at least we say we agree to. And then you had some interesting research around the things we say we value and how people sort of report. Right. Could you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, so some core values of research are uh, identified by Robert, Robert Merton, the norms of, of research, right? the transparency, openness, right? So research claims become credible by being able to see how we got there. What's the claim? What's the data that support that claim? How were those data generated? How were they analyzed? How do you arrive at that claim? Research evidence has great value because you can see that whole process in order to decide whether that final claim is, is credible compared to someone just saying, nope, this is how it is. I can't show you how I did it, but this is what we learned. Uh, likewise, self-skepticism. Researchers are supposed to be challenging their own beliefs, using data in order to confront themselves rather than being dogmatic of saying, I think the world works this way, and so I'm just going to look for evidence that helps to support my existing view of the world. 
So those values, it's easy for researchers to embrace and say, I believe in transparency. I believe in self-skepticism. I believe in reproducibility. Someone else should be able to take the claims that I make and do their own study and find support for those claims, uh, be able to reproduce the evidence independently. Uh, they're easy to embrace because they are really at the core of what makes science, science. Uh, but they're hard to do in practice because the, what drives a researcher's behavior is not just pursuing the truth, that certainly is something that researchers care about, but it's also how do, how do I get a job? How, how can I keep my job? How can I advance in my career? And a lot of the incentives for career advancement, for, um, uh, for surviving and thriving, uh, involve things that are different than finding the truth. They're about finding things that are publishable because publication helps you advance in your career. It's about finding things that seem exciting so that a grant agency would say, that's exciting, we want to give money to that. Right? So those rewards of the practice of research can start to come into conflict with the goal of just getting to truth. Right. So what does it take to get published? In academia, because not everybody watching this is going to be familiar with that world. What is that process like? What are, in your experience or from research you've seen, are the types of things that tend to be true for the papers that do get published versus those that get rejected? Yeah, so we can characterize in terms of what gets published and then generalize that to what evidence do people care about. Uh, and in the, in the academic domain, things that are more likely to get published are things that find positive evidence rather than negative evidence. What is positive evidence? It's well, these two things are related to one another. When you eat chocolate, this happens to your health, uh, rather than when you eat chocolate, nothing happens to your health, which would be a negative result. Uh, more likely to get published with new findings. Well, it turns out that chocolate makes you 20% stronger. No one knew that. Oh, wow. Uh, so that's new, rather than chocolate makes your teeth rot. Kind of knew that. That's a, something that someone else has done. Uh, or, uh, clean and tidy results. So I, research is hard, it's complicated, but if I do all these studies and sort of find a nice story where everything fits together really neatly, then that's more publishable. Then, well, it didn't quite work here, and we have some exceptions here. We don't understand this part, but we've learned a lot, so you should publish that. So a positive result, uh, a novel result, and a clean and tidy story is the best kind of thing to become publishable. That same is true for what makes people in general, not just scientists, but people in general take results seriously, right? What's more likely to get covered in the newspaper? Stuff that is clean and tidy, easy to understand, provides something newsworthy, is new, and provides something that's exciting to hear about. Oh, wow, that, that actually happens. Oh, I wanna hear about more about that. Likewise, with thinking about how to treat policy interventions or things that we might do in the world. Sort of finding, well, this thing we tried didn't work, this thing we tried didn't work, this thing we tried didn't work, well, that's not very helpful for advancing anybody's policy agenda. Uh, finding things that worked, well, that, that's helpful. <laughs> uh, so it's the same sort of pressures for academic research and advancement for what makes ideas get taken seriously. Right. And so, I mean, there's at least two things you identified there. One, this kind of bias and what actually gets published, sometimes gets referred to as a kind of a file drawer problem where there are studies that are done where we have negative or null findings that get sort of stowed away. Yeah. The second had to do with kind of, as I was hearing it, the story you're able to tell 
yeah. around it and how compelling and, is that story going to be and that could be amplified also by the likelihood of being picked up by the media yeah. there you also spoke a lot about how there is discretion in the data analytics itself and so you know if you know as a researcher that a positive finding is more likely to be published what does the space of discretion look like from a research standpoint once you get in the data and how you get to a positive and, finding yeah and this is where there's the biggest challenge. Uh, and so the case we can put aside is fraud, right? That I don't care about evidence. All I want to do is, is support my existing beliefs or do something that will advance my career. That's explicit. That's intended. Those are, and that it happens. Uh, but let's put that aside as a hopefully rare behavior. The area that we are most interested in is that very wide gray area where I myself, being a researcher that cares about the truth, that cares about being open, that cares about reproducible evidence, I myself am still vulnerable to. Where when I get into a research question, I have ideas about what might be true, or what I think is going to happen. I also have my career interests in mind and the career interests of my collaborators in mind of we need to get publishable results in order to advance our careers. And so when we get into that research, a number of things happen along the way, right? We design a study. We have lots of choices in design. That's fine. They're supposed to have choices there. How do we test the question the best way? When we get the data, there's lots of choices we can make about how do we analyze it. What, so data is just data. It doesn't tell you what the story is. You have to do something to the data to decide, did, this, did something happen? What happened? What's the finding? And there is many choices that one makes when analyzing data, right? So if we're thinking about a study where uh, the outcome of interest is health. Well, how do you define health? Is it whether they lived or died? Is that the only way to think about it? Is it blood pressure included? Is it uh, how many times they went to the hospital? How long they stayed at the hospital? There's all kinds of ways to think about how do you define what health is, and all of those ways might be in the data set. So I have to make choices then. Okay, if health is my outcome. Which of those is the outcome that I care about? And so as I'm analyzing the data, and let's say I have all of those in play of different outcomes, and it turns out one of them, how long they stayed at the hospital, is one that shows a result from my intervention. Because I think eating chocolate is really keeps you out of the hospital. That's what the value of chocolate is. Uh, and so turns out that one shows that people who ate more chocolate don't stay in the hospital as long. But all the other ones didn't show that. And so the inclination I might have, because I have this existing belief about the benefits of chocolate, might be that's really the important outcome. Whether they live or die, that's not really what I was caring about. And that's, that's a rare event anyway. Don't take that seriously. Right? Blood pressure, blood pressure is influenced by lots of things. Uh, so I might reason myself into thinking that this is the outcome that matters. But the problem, of course, is that that could have happened by chance. Right? Research doesn't provide definitiveness. It's uncertain. There's lots of randomness that goes into what happens. And so if I'm using lots of different choices, I'm using my flexibility to analyze the data, and I may arrive at what appears to be a finding that now confirms my existing beliefs, but was because I was specification seeking. I was looking in many different ways in order to then arrive at a single way of thinking about the result. Right. So what can we do about some of these problems, whether it's the file drawer problem, whether it's what you were just describing, it sometimes gets referred to as kind of 
be hacking until you yeah. get the result you want. Yeah. What are some of the things that we can do to mitigate these negative influences? Yeah. So the so the two big choices as you characterize them that I have are whether to tell you about the study at all. Right. I might do ten studies and show one of them, and then the choices that I make along the way as I do those studies. Um, so the best way to address both of them is to put constraint on me. So I'm going to do the studies, and I'm going to analyze them in some way. So if I have studies I'm going to do, then I should record that I'm going to do those. I should have to put down on paper, we don't use paper anymore, put into the interwebs, uh, the, into the tubes, the, right, yeah. the yeah. tubes yeah. just shove them in there, uh, that this study is going to be done. I don't know what the outcomes are yet, but if beforehand I think this is a reasonable study to do, it's important enough to do, that I'm going to get evidence from it, then I should be willing to commit myself to saying I'm going to do the study. And so make a public uh, commitment in a registry, uh, a study registry, that this study is going to be done. Now, what that solves uh, by constraint is now other people will know I at least started that study. Don't, maybe I didn't finish it for some reason, but at least I started it because it's now it's in the registry. And so people can discover that when they see my flashy report in the journal of this amazing study about the benefits of chocolate, they can go search uh, in the registry and see, oh, you registered 20 studies about chocolate. What are the other 19? So that addresses one problem uh, because now it's discoverable and people can follow up and say, where's the rest of the evidence that you The other thing that I can do is commit in advance to how I'm going to analyze the data. So I have all those choices about the different outcomes uh, of hospital stay, living or dying, etc. What if before I know the results, I have to tell you what, which is the one that I'm taking seriously, or I'm going to combine them all, how am I going to combine them, and that's going to be my measure. If I have to tell you in advance, I have to commit to it in the registry what my analysis plan is, then I don't have that flexibility. I give myself constraint, because I do want to find the truth, but I give myself the constraint not to be able to reason, rationalize my way uh, to the finding that's most convenient for me. Instead, I've made the commitment in advance. So that pre-commitment of the study and of the analysis plan are the most effective ways to prevent my reasoning, rationalizing strategies to influence the results. Now, it's also important to note that that's not a cure-all in the sense that my advanced plans aren't always correct, right? I may do some, something in the study may happen that makes the way I thought I was going to analyze the data not appropriate. So we need to have researchers have the flexibility to analyze it in new ways, discover things that we didn't anticipate. But that is uh, explicitly exploratory, after the fact decisions, when it's not aligned with my analysis plan. And what that does is make it very clear. Here are my planned analyses. Here's my planned studies. Here are the outcomes that came from that, from those plans where I had constraint. And now that I see the data and I analyze it lots of different ways, I may get new ideas about new things to study, but they're not findings yet. They aren't definitive in the way, or less, more definitive uh, uh, than, uh, than when I have that constraint. Uh, they are opportunities for, for new research. Right, and that distinction between confirmatory or exploratory is an important one. It seems like a lot of some of the early resistance to pre-analysis plans sometimes got trip up on this point, thinking that if you didn't have it listed out in advance, you were sort of 
forbidden right. from adding Can't analysis to it. Right. It's not that. You, of course, can. Right. You just need to be honest with the reader right. about whether you found something that coincided with your initial belief before you touched the data, or you stumbled across it. It might totally be true, right. but you didn't expect it, and that, that signaling to yeah. the reader right. kind of helps. Right. It gives me, to, as, as you analyze your data and you find that thing that you said, oh, we actually, our analysis plan was a bad idea to analyze it this way. Uh, because of X, Y, and Z reason. So we did it this way once we saw the data. I can look at it and say, oh, just everybody would have made that choice. That was a stupid idea in the beginning. Right. They made a much better decision when they changed it. Or I could say, well, that's kind of weird. Right. Show me what happened with the initial analysis. Right. Hmm, it totally changed in the direction that you wanted. That's a little more curious now. And then we can have a debate, uh, and a good debate, about the reasonableness of that. Right. Well... So here at the lab, we're aiming to pre-register all of our pre-analysis plans for projects. And so um, it's sort of in the heart and soul here to value this component of research integrity. But, but let, me, let me put on a skeptic's hat and try to, to whack on a couple of these things. Yeah. One, for the pre-registration to help on the problem, that file drawer problem of some studies getting done and we don't know about them. It seems like it makes a large assumption that people are going to actually be Sort of cure, you know, going through all of these registries, and then you know, I'm following your posted things, and then yeah. if after some number of time I don't see a one-to-one -one match of publications, I'm going to call you. I mean, I don't know what I'm going to do. Like, where, what's how? What is the self-enforcing mechanism here to actually have that bite happen? Right. So the so this is an important one. Is if no one looks, does it ever have any impact? Uh, and if they if it's not efficient to look, then maybe people can't look. So. One answer is that no one has to look for it still to be effective. Right. If I know that you could, you could go check on my prior research, and that's enough for me to have perspective when I'm making my decisions about what to report, to know that if I only report this one study, you're going to know about the other 19. So because I am, I'm not trying to commit fraud, in that context, I'm much more likely to say there are 19 others, and this is why you shouldn't take them seriously. Uh, and trying to make a case for why that one matters. Um, and so the, the will, just the fact of making it public will change people's behavior to some degree. The second part of it is that we don't need to check everything because not all research ends up making a difference in the world, right? A lot of research gets done, we don't know which of it is going to have a big impact on changing the direction of knowledge and findings and having an impact in uh, public policy or whatever. So it really ends up, in the long run, only those that are having a big impact, where people may have the motivation to go and look. So do we care about open government, right? The fact that things are made accessible about different government operations? Most of the time we say, well, no one ever goes and looks at that stuff. But on the times where you really want to see it, mm -hmm. it makes a big difference. Right. And that's the same in research. Right. That, that study is going to change the public policy across the nation. Let's go look at what the basis of evidence is. I want to see every study that was done on body cams uh, right. so I can be confident uh, right. in the conclusion that ends up coming out of it. Right. Are there examples of further structural things? So, you know, if you're the National Institute of Health or something requiring your grantees to go to clinicaltrials.gov and pre-register your trials, 
I mean, they could be in a position whenever they're making the next round of grant decisions to look back and say, yes. if you've right. pre-registered 10 things and you've never published any, we'll put some bite behind it by not right. funding you. Right. Are there things like that happening or is that a... Uh, I would say that there is discussion and there's active planning of how different uh, agencies or funding organizations more generally might have enforcement. Right now, most of the uh, funding organizations, whether they're federal or not, are requiring things like data management plans in the proposal. You have to say what you're going to do, but there's very little enforcement to follow up on the back end. So it doesn't have implications for getting the rest of your funding for that grant, uh, nor does it tend to have impact on the next grant. But those are easy changes, and there's certainly people are that, that think a lot about these issues in funding organizations are looking at how they might incorporate uh, accountability mechanisms uh, right. for did you follow your data management plan of making what you found available? Did you follow your pre-registrations? Uh, so those, I think, are coming, uh, and so how fast they come is, is unknown. Right. Here's another dynamic I sometimes think about for the file drawer problem is that, you know, on the one hand, you'd like to think you should judge the merits of a study purely on the importance of the question, the rigor of the method before you touch the data, and the outcome of the result, the outcome of the study. You know, yeah. We don't control what happens in the right. universe, so why should the research team be control. judged by this element that have right. no, they have no control over? And yet when I do think of a publisher, if you're a premier journal for a generalized audience, this thought that there could be cases where the outcome does have an impact on the importance of kind of broadcasting the result. And so, you know, maybe there's a thousand different attempts at creating a vaccine that don't work, and there's only one that cures polio. Right. And the rigor of all 1,001 of those might have been the same, but one's positive and all the other thousand are negative. What, what is the role from a, a publishing standpoint in thinking about when the outcome actually does influence how yeah. much we want to elevate a study? Yeah, and this is true for, for how we value researchers in general. Right, so the the challenge as it, so just to sort of reframe exactly what you were saying, the challenge as I see it is that right now researchers are rewarded only for perceived novelty and the exciting findings, and not yet in sort of formalized ways for rigor, uh, for transparency, for pre-registration following, good process. So. That's a problem because it puts it way out of whack. I don't have to be rigorous. I just need to find exciting things. What the system can do better is improve the incentives for rigor, but it will not get rid of the incentives for great outcomes because great outcomes are amazing, right? I could do the most rigorous research ever on whether writing with pencils versus writing with pens is, uh, you know, provides clear, think easier to read. Or something. I don't know. Right. Something so right. trivial, but the most rigorous research ever. It should not make me a famous scientist because I figured out this trivial problem. So we will always have rewards for pub publishers and publishing, for researchers, for people who find amazing things, who discover stuff that changes the universe. But that doesn't happen very often. So the fact that right now all of the incentives are about finding the next amazing thing. Right doing the most novel, incredible uh, study, curing polio, whatever it is, um, 
the fact that that's the singular aim and outcome creates a big problem because there are lots of scientists. <laughs> right. Uh, and what they also need to be rewarded for is rigorous reproducible research because that's what most of research is. 99% of the research just needs to be rigorous and it will provide incremental evidence about lots of different problems we're trying to figure out. And every once in a while, there'll be that boom finding that you'll say, now that, she should be famous because that was amazing. Right. Let's go back to that other one of the, the p-hacking type of phenomenon. It might be useful to sort of, to, to say a little bit just about how, when scientists are talking about statistical significance and p-values, yeah. What are, we, what are we even talking about, just so we can sort of set the stage for yeah. why this, this concept has the magical power it yeah. does to some? So one of the pervasive ways to try to figure out whether we have found a relationship between two things, or if we found that this intervention impacts something, is to do what's called null hypothesis significance testing. And the, the basic idea is we want to see whether the outcomes here are unusual. Uh, unusual from the perspective of assuming there's nothing going on. Chocolate doesn't have any impact on uh, health outcomes. So how unusual is my result that chocolate was associated with this person being having a health of 35 compared to the people that didn't get chocolate a health of 30? Was that really unusual or slightly unusual? And so the standard statistic, the p-value, uh, is an index of unusualness. And smaller p-values are more unusual. It means if, if the null hypothesis is true. If there's no relationship between chocolate and health, then we wouldn't really expect this result to happen. These two groups wouldn't really differ this way by chance very easily. So if they do differ that much, then by, by convention, by p less than 0.05, uh, then we would say, oh, that's unusual. It might mean that the null hypothesis is not actually true. It may be that there is a relationship uh, between these variables. And so when we're thinking about positive results, it often gets simplified in this very discrete idea, which is I need to get a p-value less than 0.05. And so that becomes the, the basis of the term p-hacking is how do I get my, my finding to get across that ridiculously arbitrary but real barrier right. to be less than 0.05. Right. And this is where you get those situations where if you remove one row, it maybe goes from... PO6 to PO5. It's like right. those little decisions right. you can make. And then I can suddenly come up with reasons that I had to remove that row. I had right. to do that. Of course, that's the right. Well, so what do you, I forget what was the team that was just pushing this out, suggesting that one way to solve this is to move the p-value. Yeah, so I'm, down I'm on to, that paper as well. Okay, oh, you're on, so, yeah. of course you're, you're on all of these. <laughs> all the papers. So what, I, I mean, a reaction one might have, the kind of the reaction I had is if the p-value is arbitrary anyway. And what you really want to try to get a sense on is kind of this balance of how important is it to be wrong in one direction or the other, you know? And so, right. you know, if it's, if it's, do I like chocolate Reese's more than chocolate peanut butter or something like that, the average person, whether we get that wrong, I don't really care. So it can be a more sort of generous p-value. If it's something like, is the chocolate going to poison my pets? Yeah. I'd rather you err on the side of, of sort of warning me against yes. it than the other way. <laughs> right. But that's to say, just make the p-value smaller. Still, it doesn't. Do, it's not. It's not pushing for nuance on the, the sort of false positive, false negative trade-off. What, what is it doing? What's, right. what, what's, why, why do that move rather than right. 
just thinking fundamentally differently about p-values in the first place. So the so this paper, just to provide context, is makes a suggestion that the standard of p.05 is too liberal, and so we need a more stringent, we need 0.005, make it really small, uh, meaning you have to get really unlikely evidence to decide that you've got a significant result, a finding, a positive finding. Um, and the, uh, the proposal is saying, look, this isn't going to solve all of our problems. We're looking at some, for something that's very practical and could be implemented immediately that would change how people thought about evidence. Because at its core, the goal of shifting the p-value is to start to get researchers to think a bit more uh, about the strength of evidence rather than did I get over this magical threshold of 0.05. To get over the magical threshold, not doing any p-hacking, but just to get below the magical threshold, uh, uh, is feels like it's hard to do, feels like it's good evidence, but it's actually still very weak evidence. Uh, and and, re, and the, it's hard to appreciate the statistics of it as a researcher of how easy it actually is to get uh, a significant result when there isn't actually anything there, uh, less than 0.05. And so the paper suggests let's move the what we call significant to be more stringent and then let's call from 0.05, this current standard, to 0.005, the new standard, call that suggestive. Mm -hmm. So the idea is really, instead of just a dichotomy, is it there or is it not there, let's make it three levels. Mm -hmm. Not there, suggestive, and there. And does that solve everything? Not at all. Most of the people in the paper want to get rid of p-values altogether. <laughs> But most that's what I was about to ask yeah, next. So, is, is what about just an alternative? Yeah. So Bayesian most of the authors are Bayesians, uh, and but also most of the authors have been doing research long enough to know that we are just not going to change the field to be all Bayesians. Right. We've been trying that for 45, 50, whatever year number of years, long time. Uh, statisticians have been pointing out the problems with p-values. And for that entire time, decades, researchers have said, oh, yeah, yeah, mm, that sounds bad. And p-values are the law of the land. It, this, the, it is, uh, and no one says they're the law of the land. Say, no, no, we don't think in p-values, but we do think in p-values. Everything about our behavior is embracing this crazy 0.05 statistic as being the arbiter of right. findings and non-findings. So no one likes p-values, no one likes p.05, and we're all enslaved to overstate uh, right. by right. it. Uh, and so, the, so this was just more of a pragmatic realization is how are we going to make any progress on this? How are we going to unseat this thing that we all know is not the best way to do it, that we all know alternatives that could be better ways to do it, and yet we can't get out of it? Right. Let's try one thing, which is the, the smallest step that we could think of, which is instead of dichotomy, make it three levels. That's not going to end it because as soon as, if, if we can get there, great. Now we have people thinking about strength of evidence. Now we have a little bit of a basis to start talking about strength of evidence more generally and right. other ways of thinking about it that are not p-value based but might be uh, you know, Bayes factor based or other, right. some other methodologies. And I think, I mean, I think one of the reasons, in particular, I paused in the setting working in now in government is that very often we're piloting a program where the, the sample size, the number of people involved is, you know, yeah. a, a couple hundred here, a couple hundred there. There is no option to run 2,000 people because we're not doing it with, you know, online or under. It's a, it's a real program we're trying to pilot. So the power is, is hopelessly low for the, the traditional PO5. Yeah. But I don't want to just say, well, because we can't power it for PO5, or we're still powered for PO05 now, yeah. we just can't learn anything. 
It's not that. I mean, if you fall back on, like, we can do it and give you some Bayesian stuff. Yeah. And so I wonder if in solving the problem in the academy, we're actually setting ourselves up for the for policymakers who are thinking about this to just worsen the power problem they're having. Yeah. So, and there are people in the academy that have the same complaints. Look, I, I collect data with infants. It takes all day and five right. different right. people to coordinate getting one infant into the lab to stop crying, to be awake, to be attentive long enough to actually get the data. It's so hard to get the data. Uh, we can't possibly make a greater stringency on what we uh, consider evidence. And there, there's very real pragmatic concerns there. The point that we try to argue in this paper is that the statistics don't care about how hard it was to get the data, right? So we can't make arguments about the difficulty of data acquisition to counter the, what the strength of evidence is. The strength of evidence is the strength of the evidence. For areas where it's harder to collect data, evidence is going to be, accumulate slow, more slowly. Right. And what we, I think what we need to embrace is sometimes we're going to say this is an important enough problem that we still need to do it even though evidence accumulating slowly. Right? Right. There are some areas of research where we can get data very, very fast. Right. Right? A single person, uh, we can learn a lot by figuring out how uh, psychophysical experiences, perceptual experiences. Uh, we can learn a lot very quickly uh, by collecting a lot of data from one person and then replicating another person and another person. Um, other areas, it takes a long time to get any evidence. Right. But that those two areas of research, one of them is going to move faster in terms of knowledge accumulation than the other. Right. And it, we, it, we sort of just have to embrace it as these are important problems. We have to investigate public policy problems, and our evidence is weak. Right. There it is. And maybe, and maybe the core of my concern there is actually how we talk about p-values and statistical significance in not this more subtle kind of evidence accumulating up and going down, but this more binary way of no result, pilot didn't work, shut it down, move on. Exactly. And then that's, that's, that's a big risk, right? And the same thing for publication is that we think of it dichotomously in terms of its implications for now we have to make a decision. But decisions are uncertain in both directions with little evidence. And so that's the key, yeah, right. right, is that getting an all result doesn't mean there's nothing there. <laughs> Uh, it means you don't. You may not just not have enough evidence yet, right. uh, and so that's that's a really hard problem, and it's and it's hard to see it. Right? We want to think in simple, definitive terms: study found it or not, right. and move on. And very rarely can we do that in any research, and and in the public policy arena, that's all the more challenging right. to wrestle. Well, so let, we're running out of time, but I want to maybe ask about one more kind of category of issue before we finish up here, which is the possibility of the, the pre-analysis plan, that write-up of how you're going to approach the study, how you're going to do the analysis to sort of facilitate agreement on the back end with what we learn. Yeah. And, you know, we're starting to, certain fields more than others are starting to use pre-analysis plans more. What do we know about how different research teams who have been disagreeing with each other, who if they start doing their research through pre-analysis plans, are we actually seeing a convergence on what is the truth faster than yeah. in the absence of the plans? Yeah, so we, we have only anecdotal examples so far. Uh, so we have one from my lab where we did this. Uh, there were four of us, uh, myself and Aaron Westgate from my lab, and then uh, two colleagues, Yoel Inbar and David Pizarro, uh, 
we collaborated on a paper uh, testing a question that they had interest in, and we we did a pre-analysis plan together, agreeing on uh, what would be an effective test of the question given the context of the study. And we went through that entire process, and we analyzed the data, and we got the results, and two of us said, oh, okay, this means X, and two of us said, oh, no, this means Y. And we had done an analysis plan, right? We had right. laid it all out. Right. Uh, and and had come to agreement, uh, but still interpreted the evidence uh, differently between us. And so what we did in the paper was we wrote uh, a, a discussion section with both of our perspectives. Here are the results as we define in the pre-analysis plan, and here's our distinct interpretations of those results. So that's one illustration, sort of the implications yeah. at the back end, is it facilitated a conversation. We did have agreement, uh, and we were close uh, uh, on the outcomes, but, but not the same. The more interesting cases are when the groups are, we weren't really ideologically opposed at the outset. They might have had somewhat different positions, but you know, it was just a collaborative exercise. Um, but when there are different beliefs about what's going to happen or what's, what's good uh, in this situation uh, uh, for what's going to happen in the study, um, and working through the pre-analysis plan in advance of what the study design should be and then how we should analyze the data, has the benefit of no one knows the outcome. And so all we need to argue about is what are the outcomes that we care about and what's the appropriate way to test it. And oftentimes, not all the time, but oftentimes we can agree on that, even if we have ideologically opposed positions. So right. that, that is the outcome we care about. Right? Right. And okay, that, that does now, as we've talked it through, that does look like a reasonable test. If we explic can explicitly agree on that, right, and then we can pre-register it and have it all out, laid out, and explicitly we're both attached to saying this is a reasonable test. Now we've put ourselves both under constraint. Uh, and there have been teams that have done done this with an adversarial collaboration. They came up and agreed on the design, they registered it, uh, and they've committed to it, and then they ran the study. And then the results came out and they were more aligned with one team than, than the other team, at least from an independent read. Both teams still have their priors, their existing beliefs, the re reactions to the findings once they come out, that one team says, ha-ha, I was right. The other team says, well, now that we see it, what about this, what about that? There's some things to think about here. But anecdotally, at least, everybody moves a little bit more in mm -hmm. that case, right? Because we did get on board. Right. right. I did agree with you that that was a good test, and now that the results came out the way that you thought they would come out and not the way that I did, I have to at least acknowledge, because I did so publicly, that this I thought this was a reasonable test in advance. So it has really nice opportunity, still not tested sufficiently, but very nice opportunity to really move partisan debates to be in the context of trying to solve problems and be much more responsive to evidence okay. rather than leveraging evidence as a weapon. Right. And, the, and, you know, part of the reason we wanted to ask that is that if you think academia is a partisan place, yeah. come try to do science and, and government, where it's quite deliberately very partisan. And increasingly, I think when I started, I had this idea that if we could just get the politics out of science, then somehow the data will shine Everybody forth said, oh, and everyone well, science will, said so. Right, and, and I think I think that's not only 
naive about just the, the right. actual ability to do that, but actually not right either. It's actually not the right way to even think about it. We actually need uh, maybe more politics in science, but in particular ways. Yeah. And it's really around the just intrinsic value judgments. You know, how big of an effect size is big enough to want to fund something or not? Or how much certainty do you need to have around those estimates? Right. These are not things we can crunch numbers on or speak to as scientists. They're value judgments that, yeah. you know, another way of thinking about it is they fall back on political processes for decision making. Yeah. And so one of the things we're trying to kind of push here in the lab is thinking about how the pre-analysis plan could be used not only for the scientific integrity components, but using it also for a platform to facilitate some of those political dialogues around yeah. what is a meaningful effect size, and let's talk about that now, and let's register that now so that at the end, if we see a 3% effect, somebody doesn't try to move the goalpost and say, oh, well, it actually needed to be 4% to fund it, if they would have instead said 2% before they knew the outcomes. Right. Um, but I'm wondering, you know, seeing how that plays out in academia for converging is kind of a, a first litmus test yeah. for how likely a, this right. is going to work right. in the political yeah. sphere. And too. there is no doubt that people do not just flip on their priors. They have an existing position. They, they're not going to suddenly just have a change of heart and say, oh my gosh, okay, turns out I've been a liberal all my life. Now that I see these conservative results, the results that are aligned with a conservative position, I'm now conservative. Uh, people will find that we have very good defense mechanisms. But people are likely to move more. And if there are commitments, if we're willing to commit in advance, for even, for example, I mean, what would be amazing to say that the law is passed that says, contingent on the outcome of this study, right. this will be funded or not funded, <laughs> based on these criteria. I mean, that would be mind-boggling. Um, but, but I think it's very productive to do for exactly the reason you say, and for the potential to actually identify where there are just very different assumptions about what the desired outcomes are, mm -hmm. right? So identifying the things in the design where uh, you care about reducing poverty, I care about people living longer. We right. thought we were talking about the same issue, uh, yeah. but it turns out when we're just trying to come up with that analysis plan, we had very different outcomes in mind. Yeah. And now that's a place for collaborative partisan discussion on, okay, well, hang on a second. Which of these problems do we want to solve? How do we want to solve them? Uh, can we get aligned on what outcomes this policy is could be good for or not? And it's possible that we would decide, oh, we need to test this both ways. It should, if it doesn't hurt your position and it does help my position in terms of the outcomes we care about, then that might be something we fund, yeah, right. Right? right? Versus if it goes both directions, then we have to de decide how much worse that it makes it for you versus how much better it makes it for me in terms of the outcomes we care about makes it a, a policy worth pursuing. Yeah, and that and that is that clarification is, we're experiencing that for sure. Yeah. Nice. Well, I, I love it. So, so many more questions, but let me just ask one more, which is what's on the horizon for, for yourself, for the Center for Open Science, kind of what should we be on the lookout for over the next three months, six months, 12 months, whatever time frame you wanna push it out? Yeah. Uh, so we have now a, a, a suite of products and services. They're all free and open source. So our goal is uh, to make them as broadly accessible and used as possible. So we have things that support journals uh, and funders to try to help them define transparency policies and practices and make those uh, make their expectations of their uh, authors or grantees uh, more explicit 
uh, and potentially more rigorous. Uh, and then we have the Open Science Framework, which is just the general project management tool to try to help support researchers uh, managing their research, archiving their research, but then making it more publicly accessible, allowing them to pre-register and other things. So what we're have building in those is enhancing the feature set so that uh, it's easier for communities to start their own registry or start their own uh, preprint service for sharing the outcomes of research uh, and then uh, extend that to uh, across any disciplines. So the really the, the sort of the core goal right now is empower research groups uh, to innovate on scholarly communication themselves. And so that's what we're hoping that we'll start to scale up very quickly over the next number of months. That's great. Well, I know we're all going to look forward to that. And I'll plug the Open Science Framework for you. You should visit that if you haven't. I'll plug it in the way it's not going to be a surprise to you. Yeah. You should get there by going to the lab.dc.gov first. Make sure you sign up to stay engaged with us. But on there, you'll find our link to the OSF framework. And not only can you use it as a way of learning about the platform itself, but you can do it in the context of learning about the lab projects that we have going on. A win-win, I would say. So with that, uh, Brian, thank you. It's been a really fun conversation. My pleasure. Thanks.